Welcome to the next episode in the Women's Energy Council podcast series. Today, I'd like to welcome Halima Roft, Managing Director and Global Head of Commodity Strategy at RBC Capital Markets. Over the next 30 minutes or so, Halima will share with us how her experience working at the CIA was the ultimate boot camp when it came to preparing her for her career in the oil and gas industry, what her thoughts are on what the demand environment will look like over the next few decades, the differing constraints faced by developed and developing countries in accelerating the energy transition, and the importance of her support system in raising three children and being able to maintain the right work-life balance. So Halima, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. Much appreciated. I thought we would start by talking a little bit about where you're from. Talk to us a little bit about your background and how you think your background has kind of brought you to where you are today. Great. Thank you so much. I grew up in Washington, D.C., and I was always sort of very interested in foreign affairs because of the community I lived in. And I always was interested in trying to figure out sort of like the way the world worked. And, you know, my path to working on energy issues was a little bit off the beaten track compared to many other analysts. I did a PhD at Princeton in economic history. I then joined the CIA after 9-11 and I worked in the energy security group. And we were very much focused after 9-11 on worldwide threat to oil disruption because it was a time when the United States was seen as incredibly dependent on foreign oil and security of supply meant keeping every producer basically getting their oil out of the ground and on the water. And I started my career covering Nigeria and then I went to the Council on Foreign Relations and continued working on these energy security issues and then found my way to Wall Street, starting at Lehman Brothers and then Barclays and then to RBC. And so I sort of sit at the nexus energy and geopolitics. Perfect. Thank you. So, yeah, starting at the CIA or Central Intelligence Agency, obviously during a very different or or difficult time within the US, what did you learn from being there and how have the skills that you learned there kind of developed, helped you in, in your role today? Oh, gosh. I mean, I think being an analyst at the CIA was the ultimate boot camp in terms of really thinking critically about issues, thinking about sort of sources and methods, I mean, one of the things that I text, the biggest lesson I took from it was to always sort of think about the incentives and motivations and the environment that other people are operating in. So when we think about why Saudi Arabia might do a production cut or why Russia might be resisting, it's all too easy as an analyst just to sit there and impose your own set of circumstances on other leaders, whereas I think it's really important to try to basically say, if I were sitting in Riyadh or sitting in Moscow, and these were the set of circumstances I was dealing with in my country, how would I make that decision? And so I think that was probably the biggest lesson that I learned at the agency, was to really try to think about all the sort of circumstances and stresses and particular situational dynamics facing leaders around the world. Sure. You mentioned first off there as well that some of the issues that you were tackling at at that time and certainly that the US was tackling around that time was around energy security. You know, there was already conversations around kind of peak oil and and the US's role in, in developing the energy markets. Some might say that we're in the same position today. How do you see how the energy industry has developed over the last 10 years? So between 2010 and today? Well, you know, it's interesting you bring up the issue of peak oil. I mean, that's where big focus was when I joined the U.S. government in 2001. I mean, we basically had people out there like Matt Simmons, who was writing that basically Saudi Arabia was running out of oil. And the idea was that essentially 
that this could be a scarce resource and that we needed to develop other resources in other parts of the world. So we were very focused on potentially seeing Nigerian production grow from 2 million barrels a day in the early 2000s to 4 million by 2010. Never happened. We were very focused on countries like Kazakhstan, you know, additional supply coming from stands in those parts of the world. We didn't believe we had that resource endowment in the United States. And that's where the shale revolution really changed everything in terms of the outlook for U.S. energy security. And now it's fascinating that we're not talking about peak oil, we're talking about peak demand and energy transition. So it, it shows that a lot can change in a couple of decades. And I think the real issue right now in the energy market is, you know, what is the demand environment going to look like over the next couple of decades? But it's incredible, again, how much things have changed from just the beginning of the century when we were really focused on the idea that we could be running out of oil. And I suppose we, you know, we couldn't have this conversation without a comment on the buzzword, or certainly the buzzword before COVID-19 on, on the energy transition. What are some of your thoughts on that? Well, I think it's really interesting in terms of trying to be humble about sort of what we don't know, in terms of, you know, what really is going to be the appetite for developing countries to switch over to things like electric vehicles. I mean, one of the things I've been really struck by when I'm participating in these sort of international forums, when you listen to particularly, you know, representatives of countries like India, they really say, look, you know, we absolutely support climate change objectives, but we also very much want to alleviate poverty in our country. And we see energy poverty is one of the biggest constraints that we face in terms of growing our middle class. And I think that is a really interesting tension that you see, and not just in places like India, but you also hear it in sub-Saharan Africa as well. The emphasis that, look, people still use biomass to heat their homes. We can't leave them behind. And so I think what's going to be really interesting is sort of how this tension between, you know, the climate change agenda that's really being set by Europe and the United States, how that dialogue works with the arguments that are being made by developing countries to say, look, we still need to grow our middle class. And so I think that's going to be very interesting to see how this plays out. Sure. And that talking of kind of Africa and, and developing countries, you know, when we've spoken before, you've mentioned your love of Nigeria, which is where your career started in, in some form. Can you tell me a bit about that? Oh, yeah. No, I mean, Nigeria, I always joke, you never, as an analyst, you never forget the first country that you worked on. And Nigeria was such an exciting time to be working on in 2001. Nigeria had just transitioned out of decades of military rule. Elusidon Obasanjo was a leader that the United States knew very well, but very highly of, you know, the Board of Board Foundation, Amnesty International. And so we were very excited about the opening of Nigeria economically, politically. And it was a place that the United States really saw as essential to energy security. We were taking almost 40% of Nigeria's oil exports were going to the United States at the time. We wanted to take more of that oil. We saw ourselves again dependent on foreign suppliers. And Nigeria was a place that we really wanted to partner with. And I think what is really interesting is if you look at the shale revolution, what that really has done is it's really backed out imports from a country like Nigeria. And so I do think that Nigeria has been you know, uniquely affected by the shale revolution in terms of like trying to find now the market for their crude. And Nigeria is a country that we're really watching in terms of 
what happens in an energy transition scenario. I mean, Nigeria is a place when oil was above 100, was still struggling to, you know, make the types of arrangements with, you know, various interest groups in the country to keep the sort of peace together. And in the current oil price environment, the outlook for Nigeria at $30 Brent is pretty ruinous. And so I think this latest period of you know, low prices it really is an impetus for countries like Nigeria to really push forward as fast as they can with economic diversification plans. I mean, it shows the perils of still you know, being very, very levered to sort of one export. And you talked earlier about the, the start of your career at the CIA and then obviously using that role as an analyst to move into the banking world. You know, from the language that you would use on even from, you know, your LinkedIn profile to now, you really show a real passion about, where, about what you do. Where does that passion come from? You know, I, I think it is something just from my, my upbringing. I always was just, you know, fascinated by wanting to know the way the world worked. And you know, growing up in Washington, like I really remember as a young kid discussing with parents in the Iranian Revolution. I remember you know, watching the news with my parents when you know, the Americans were hostage in the embassy. I remember even the long gas lines during the Arab oil embargo. And so these were events that were always being discussed in my house. My parents traveled a lot. I traveled with my parents a lot when I was growing up. I was very fortunate. And so that was kind of the incubator for my love of international affairs. And I, I feel so grateful that I get to you know, look at the type of issues that I've always been deeply interested in and that I get to travel to such exciting places and interact with such interesting officials as they really try to find the way to use this resource endowment for prosperity for their nation. I mean, to me, what's really interesting when you go to developing countries, I mean, energy is the engine of prosperity. And I think that's something that we sometimes forget in the United States, but if you're a national oil company, I mean, you are working in the service of your nation. You know, the citizens are the shareholders of those companies. Oh, and, and as you say, kind of during that travel and you get to meet so many people from different walks of life and different cultures, etc. Has there been any key meetings or any key relationships that you've uncovered during these trips that has really inspired you and, and excited you? Well, you know, it's interesting when I look at your list, you know, of your influencers. I mean, so many women on those lists have you know, been key role models for me. And I was particularly excited to see Fatima Noemi from Adnoff. I had had the pleasure to interview her this year at WEC. She's so inspiring. She's somebody who combines, you know, just absolute career excellence with also being a real role model for young women in her organization. And I find it really inspiring when you have women leaders who really made it at the top of this industry, but I also think it's incredibly important to build the ladder for the next generation. And so, you know, getting to interact with women like her has been just so fulfilling for me in my career. Let's talk a little bit about that because, you know, first of all, one of the reasons we're here is to be able to speak to you and congratulate you on being part of the Energy Council's Top 250 Women in Energy. But you've been named on a number of other top women lists as well. What do these accolades mean to you? I mean, they mean the world to me. And again, they mean the world to me because I look at the company, I look at who I'm with on those lists. And it's just such an extraordinary group of women. And so, 
it's incredibly gratifying that I've been sort of recognized in the league. You know, women who, again, are not only sort of excellent at their jobs, but also think it's incredibly important to build the pipeline for the next generation of leaders. I mean, they essentially believe it's imperative to get women to the top ranks of the industry. And so it means a lot to me because, I mean, again, many of these women have been my role models as I've grown up the ranks myself. Sure. And how do we encourage women and support women to get to that next rung on the ladder and move up? Well, I think it's really important to have mentors, but also sponsors. I mean, I think one of the things that sometimes holds women back is that we're sometimes excluded from the informal networking that our male peers can use to advance their careers. And so one of the things I think about in terms of lists like the ones that you've come up with is it provides also a a networking effect where women can talk to women, they can get advice. And I think for younger women, it's important that they have not only a mentor or role model, but somebody who sponsors them, who speaks for them when they are not in the room, who helps push their career along and helps highlight their accomplishments. So I think it's really important that women have networks that can assist their rise and can be there for them when they face tough times. And have you had the opportunity to work with with mentors and sponsors that have helped you move forwards in your career? I mean, I am so grateful for the sponsors I've had in my career. And I think back to when I was just starting on Wall Street. I mean, I was really inspired by two of the most powerful women in banking, Lehman Brothers and Barclays. And they became really my role models. And I always felt that I wanted to be like them. I think of someone like Barbara Byrne, who was vice chairman of Barclays. She started her career as an oil and gas banker. And she just really was the gold standard in terms of powerful female leadership on Wall Street. And she has a great sort of human touch. I mean, she was my sponsor when I was up for manager director. Anytime I was feeling like I was struggling with the work-life balance, I had very young children at the time I was up for being a managing director, you know, she would take the call and she would basically give me, you know, resilience or help steal my spine when I was facing a difficult situation. And so I am so incredibly grateful to the people that were really my personal board of directors throughout my career. Well, let's talk a little bit about that balance, uh, that work-life balance, because you have three children or your three little Vikings, as you call them. How do you balance everything? It, It is difficult. And I think one of the things that can make women feel like they're failing is if they believe that, you know, everyone else is basically a superwoman. I mean, I'm incredibly lucky that my husband is an academic, he's a professor at Brown. He has more flexible hours than I do. We have the most extraordinary caregiver with us who really just makes it all work. And so I have a very good network home that helps me manage everything. But I would be really facing incredible challenges right now, particularly in this work from home situation, if I didn't have this support system at at home. And I think it's really important to acknowledge that and to acknowledge that it's going to be hard particularly in times like this, if you don't have that support system at home. Sure. Did you ever think that you couldn't balance it all? Has there ever been moments where you've thought, I just can't do this? (laughs) Oh my gosh, I've had countless moments where I felt I just couldn't do it, (laughs) particularly around 
you know, my children. I, there was this period where every time I would come back from a major international trip, you know, one of my children would have some like health crisis. I remember walking in the door after getting off a plane from Johannesburg and, you know, I walked in the house and one child had like put a pencil down the other one's ear and there was blood all over the place and I had to go right to the emergency room. I remember another time I was coming home and one of my children had run up the slide on a hot day and peeled the skin off his foot and it was like back oh. to the emergency room. And so I literally felt like there was like a year where I was in and out of the emergency room as soon as I came home from a big trip abroad and the doctors would sort of look at me and say like, well, where were you during this? And I was like, well, I was on a 747. And so I always felt really guilty. And then a good friend of mine pointed out that A, no doctor would probably speak to a, a man like that. And nor would the, the man necessarily feel guilty that they were, you know, working to provide for their family. But so getting over the mommy guilt was something that I really had to learn to do to thrive in this industry. You mentioned earlier that the situation that we're in now, you know, it, it creates even more difficulties when it comes to that work-life balance. Do you think that the lockdowns that have been experienced across the world have disproportionately affected women? Oh, I think absolutely. I mean, I think there's been survey data on this. I think that women often pull a second shift, even when there is no global health crisis. And I think the global health crisis has really exacerbated this. And I think it's something that also you know, men are feeling, you know, managing young children and the needs to still do a full day of work. But again, I think it probably falls disproportionately on women in terms of being now school teachers and basically performing their day-to-day -day work functions. I think a lot of women are feeling significant strain. On the positive side, though, I do think that now we're seeing that people can be productive working from home, again, under extraordinary circumstances that our children are home as well. And so I do think that you know, when we get on the other side of this, there may be potentially more flexibility in terms of where people can work. Sure, that was going to be my next question. So you got ahead of me <laughs> on that one. Something that I often notice as a, as a woman in the oil and gas industry when we run networking events, etc., is obviously the disproportionate number of men in the room versus women. Do you feel that you're often reminded that you work in a male-dominated environment or is it something that you don't think about? I think I've almost normalized it because that's basically what we go to every day. And so I think the financial services industry, if you look at the top ranks of financial services, I mean, you think about it, women start off, you know, it's usually 50-50 in the analyst and associate class. And when you look at the managing director level, you really see a huge drop off in the number of women who have achieved that rank in the industry. And I think it speaks to a lot of the challenges that women face in terms of work-life balance. You know, we do see women struggling to come back to work after their first child. And so I don't think it's unique to the oil and gas industry. I think this is something that a number of industries just have to do better on in terms of finding ways to accommodate women who want to have families and careers. When you speak with kind of other leaders in the business, what do you wish that they knew about diversity and inclusion? That there's a business case for diversity and inclusion. It's not something that you do simply to check a box, that having a more diverse workplace, a more diverse leadership means diversity of ideas, diversity of thought, 
and it makes you more resilient. It makes you more creative as an industry. So I think there is clearly a business case for it. And I think that needs to be constantly reiterated that it's not something you do just to look like a good corporate citizen. You do it because it is the best way to make your industry agile. Sure. And, and talking about leadership, I guess, more generally, you know, we are arguably in one of the most difficult periods the industry has, has faced in the last few decades, and it'll be testing leaders all over the world, whether they are men or women. What are your biggest leadership learnings and how can they be used during this time? Well, I think really this is the, the case for really having strong teams and the ability to motivate your peer group, motivate the people that you work with. I mean, I always think that my success has been really tied to how great the group of people I work with and basically making sure that everybody in a situation where we're working in different places feels like we're still driving that collective goal. And I think that's the real challenge is for leaders is how do you motivate people to be able to work when they're facing, again, sometimes very difficult situations at home, whether it be work-life balance situations, children at home, but also employees that are by themselves right now who basically feel isolated because they've essentially been by themselves for two months. So building this sort of esprit de corps, I think is the real challenge and acknowledging how difficult it's going to be for employees because of the strain and the stress of the situation we're living in right now. Sure. I mean, I'd be remiss if, if I didn't ask you about the oil prices and where we're going next. Obviously, no one knows, but they have rebounded over the last few days. What do you think the trend will be and look like in the next few months and over the next 12 months? I mean, we're absolutely seeing as global lockdown conditions ease, you know, an improvement in gasoline demand. I mean, this is really what we believe will be the engine for recovery for the oil market, particularly will be U.S. gasoline demand. And so if you have a situation where we are continuing to see caseloads decline from COVID-19, the reopening and continue, and the OPEC plus cuts and the other economically driven output cuts can bring this market into balance, then we are talking about a better back half of the year and certainly a better 2021. But a lot of this is conditioned on the COVID-19 crisis ebbing. If we get a second wave, I think that is the real concern. And so what's been so challenging about this market right now is you almost have to be an epidemiologist to figure out what the recovery path will look like. We have to really it's based on core assumptions about the trajectory of this virus. And so again, if we continue on the path that we are now and we don't get any reversals, the market should really start to improve. But again, if we were to get a situation where we get second wave and a return of lockdown conditions, the recovery will fade. I think, you know, looking at the roles that you've played in the past as, as analysts and now, a lot of what you do is being able to make big decisions with imperfect information. It sounds like we are in the, the absolute crux of that at the moment. Absolutely. And I think that's where there's so many things that I'm grateful to CIA for. But that was always what you had to do. You always had to make decisions with imperfect information. But what they always try to instill in analysts was be humble 
and acknowledge where you have analytic blind spots. You just basically try to convey when you have strong conviction, when your conviction is not as strong, and just be humble about the imperfect information. I think that's what we are trying to do right now when we think about our clients, is to really tell our clients, you know, these are the scenarios that we're looking at. These are the underlying assumptions that go into those scenarios. And if something changes, we will have to basically change our outlook. So being flexible and being humble about the situation that we're in right now, I think is critical. Sure. Well, just as we come to an end then, I wondered if you could, you know, just finish by telling us a little bit about how your goals and your vision have changed from when you started off on your career and your personal journey to what they are today. In some respects, they have remained the same. I mean, always wanted to see the world. I always wanted to understand how the world worked. I always wanted to try to see the world through the eyes of others. And that has been the sort of consistent theme in my career. What has really changed though is when I joined the agency, straight out of doing a PhD at Princeton, I kind of felt like, oh, I can do anything. And there's gonna be no roadblocks for me by life events. And I do think that having children made me more humble and empathetic to the real struggles that a lot of people face in terms of can you have it all? And so now I think I'm much more focused on trying to be a role model, trying to help the next generation of women, you know, climb the ranks. And I still think when I look at the, the top ranks, you know, the oil and gas industry, but the financial services industry, there is a lot more that can be done to get women to the highest ranks. And, you know, I look at someone like a Vicki Collip or a Mac Gentle and think they are incredible role models, these female CEOs, and I want to see their ranks grow. So I have a question for you. Something that I noticed on your Twitter profile is that you support the Icelandic national soccer team. How did that come about? Well, my husband is from Iceland and we met at Princeton during our PhDs. And one of the sort of core requirements of anyone married to an Icelander is that they support the national soccer team. My husband and my children actually went to see team play when they were playing in the World Cup in Russia. And it was kind of a, a funny situation for me because I was actually at the OPEC meeting and Nigeria, which as you know is my, my first love, was playing Iceland that day. The Secretary General of OPEC, someone I consider a dear friend, Mohammed Burkindo, he essentially held off the meeting or basically delayed the meeting so he could watch the, the World Cup game. And my mother-in-law was very nervous that I was actually going to be secretly rooting for Nigeria against Iceland that day. And so you know, that was a kind of a funny day or oil meant, you know, soccer. But again, I, I stayed on side. I, I supported Iceland. And again, that's a, a sort of a core requirement of being married into the Icelandic tribe. <laughs> Who won that day? Nigeria won that day. So my, my good friend, Secretary Mark Kinder, was very happy. And my husband, not so much. <laughs> Well, thank you so much again. I really appreciate your time and thanks for your patience. <laughs> thank you. Have a good day. And you. Take care. Bye. Bye.